everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And my co-host today is a sensation out of Sundance. My co-host's film, A Thousand and One, won the Grand Jury Prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Uh, she has made many shorts over the course of a decade, some perhaps you have heard of, uh, like The Gospel or Feather. Uh, A.V. Rockwell... You have been an artist. You have been making films uh, in some duration or another for such a long time. What is, do the folks need to know about you before we get started here with the conversation today? I need them to know that I made a movie that, <laughs> yes, as you said, is coming out and it'll be in theaters March 31st. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I would love for them to go check it out. <laughs> I made another one. Yes, I, I made I made another a one. Thank, one. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. This the personal question that I wanted to ask you from the top is just like when you when you got Tayana Taylor, what was that like? Because I mean, she's such a she's such a presence. She's such a she's such a a screen object, a, a screen, an object of art, and an actor, a talent. Like, what was like? What was it like bringing that piece on to this story you'd been developing for years with your producers? And like, all right, and here's going to be really our linchpin. You know, I th- it, it was really exciting. I think in some ways she was an obvious choice, but at the same time, the last you know person I would have thought of because sure. uh, she's an obvious choice in the sense of she does come from Harlem. She's a New York City girl. But at the same time, I didn't really know her for her acting. I, I've mm-hmm. seen very little of her uh, as, a, as, a, as an actress on screen. And so I felt like it's very cheesy to therefore like, oh, yeah, we should just go for the obvious. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't want to. Yeah see New York presented or or come from such a, a superficial place of like, oh, because you have an accent and, you know, like those type of things that that's right. why somebody should be considered for a role. So I really I was I was like, until I see what she can do, mm-hmm. um, I'm just looking at people that that are sending me tapes and just, you know, open to the audition process. Um, so her name came came around, but I took it very lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't really until she she did show up amongst those tapes and stood out very prominently um, in a way that was just so exciting and so refreshing. Um, and Tiana was so raw, but I could tell that with a little bit of information that she had, which was just those scenes she read that she really understood this character. She understood this woman and she stood what these moments mm-hmm. meant for this woman. Um, it all really shined through from the beginning. And she had that fascinating quality to her that I was I was looking for Mm -hmm. um and so yeah it was I think once we actually committed to the journey together to make this movie I was I was just so excited and thrilled that I had found found Mm -hmm. my person found my Inez you know well, in, in, in the, the movie, the movie and the character that you have brought for us to discuss today, this is uh, we are this is an episode of New York cinema, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have brought Troy, the young daughter uh, amidst so many sons in Spike Lee's 1994 film Crooklyn that he wrote with two of his siblings as well. It's a bit of a semi-autobiographical story from what I understand. And that feels this film feels like a perfect compliment in conversation, actually, to to a thousand and one to your movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think uh, I always loved that movie and, and I always recall it when people ask me like what, you know, some of my favorite movies are because at the time that I first discovered this movie as a kid, it was one of Spike's lesser known gems. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't the flagship Spike Lee movies that you thought of. But I think it resonated so deeply with me when I first discovered it to the point that I'm, I wanted everybody that I knew to watch this movie. I felt so, I mean, you know, I didn't have a self-awareness that I can, that I can speak to now, but I felt so mm-hmm. represented in that mm-hmm. movie. 
because I felt like I I didn't have a million. I mean, actually, I do have a lot of siblings. <laughs> I didn't have a million brothers the way that that Troy did. You know, mm-hmm. like I didn't grow up in a brownstone the way that Troy. I didn't grow up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Queens. Mm-hmm. But her world was still so similar to mine. I think just having this strong, powerful mother, I think this more reserved, cool uh, father who was also into music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the neighborhood kids, I think is what, sh- you know, shined the through the most for me, just mm-hmm. the colorful, you felt the colorful nature of the neighborhood. And that was what rem- remind me so much of, of just growing up in New York and just being around, like just playing double Dutch on the block or figuring mm-hmm. out what game to play amongst the neighborhood kids. And- <laughs> these firms don't look so funny like yours. Well, and these models are standing on my head sticking straight out and like tops. I don't know who's top she is, but boys I know, it looks stupid and I can't stand you. I can't stand you either. Why don't you sit down with your old black self? I'm black and I'm it's like all the neighborhood stuff that you experience and the little coming of age nuances of the movie and of Troy's experiences, even the going down south and, you yeah. know, just feeling... She was in a whole new world and there was just feeling the respectability politics within the dynamic that she had with Aunt Song. And mm-hmm. but she also learned how to be a woman through Aunt Song. And 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 I think that was a little bit of my experience as well, where I had like some roughness and toughness. But I did have a variety of influences and the other maternal figures in my life that that helped shape me in a more well-rounded way. And I and I appreciated that very much. So I think there was a lot of levels by mm-hmm. which I, re- I related to the movie itself and to Troy's upbringing as this this young New York City, you know, girl. So. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's a dress. Yes, it's for me and your Uncle Clem. Ain't that pretty? You are going to wear that today. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday, Troy. Thank you. It's a training bra. <laughs> You're not going to need that for quite a while. <clears throat> oh, um. Well, Annette, I, I, I remember I watched Crooklyn in college because one of my one of my best friends at school was this is her favorite movie. And, mm. you know, it's a Spike Lee film. But like you said, it's not one that gets talked about in the sort of headline of mm. his career. And it's interesting watching it and feeling like because he's such a distinctive style and he's such a distinctive voice, Spike Lee. And you watch Crooklyn and, and as, amidst the New York films where you sort of think of those like double like you think of like the dolly flourishes and you think of like the angle, like the sort of abrasive angles on characters and those sort of fourth wall breaks and this movie feels like the style seeds to the ensemble a bit more than it feels like was kind of typical of his 90s films and Mm -hmm. so it really like you just are you're sort of in this breathing heaving mass of the block and that takes over sort of like all the style that the the film needs to accommodate and I feel like that feels like such a signature of it and I feel like that comes through in your film as well where there is that notion of New York is New York City is a character in in these films like this is if there was in the list of credits it said New York City itself like that would be inappropriate honorific to give No, no, I think that's exactly right. I think New York was a character and and I think it exemplified the fact in many ways that New York City is 
is it's about the people, you know, like mm-hmm. the people of New York City is, is so much of what makes New York, New York. And you felt that very viscerally in that movie. So. Mm-hmm. I was reading an interview that you did with IndieWire where you talked about this, your film being a heartbreak letter to New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I felt that as I was watching it and, and not being a New Yorker and, and I'm, I'm not a native San Franciscan, but I lived in San Francisco for seven years and the city really settled into my heart. And I was watching your movie, thinking of it almost as like a companion, like a, a bi-coastal companion feature to Last Black Man in San Francisco mm-hmm. of just like you can only make something infused with so much heartbreak because it comes from an impetus of so much love. And I thought of that line in uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco of, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. Yeah. And there felt like such a, a bleeding love coming through from you with so much sort of pain in this in this film you've made. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think I, I still have a very deep core love for New York City. But I think because I have this, this deeply embedded relationship, uh, if there's some pain there, I think I do have the right to acknowledge it and I have the, the right to, to criticize it. And, mm. and yeah, I am. I feel like I'm still very protective of the city. So, mm. <laughs> you know, at the same time that I can see, you know, you know, the city has some explaining to do to, to <laughs> its people. Um, I still, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk what I talk about, you know, about uh, about New York and I'm not going to let anybody else <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> Like, yeah, you, know. you don't get to talk about my mom like that. Only I get to talk yeah, about my mom. Yeah, like exactly, exactly. So, so I think I still have a lot of love for New York City, undeniably. And I will always be there, but there's also a lot of pain that needs to be reconciled. Uh, which I, I, I did some of that, obviously, or a lot of that in the making of this movie, and I think it's still something that I'm working through. I need you to support me in this, Carolyn. Look at here. Who gets up at the crack of dawn, Monday through Friday, cooking breakfast, go to school, teach school, come home, cook dinner, grade papers, make lesson plans, try to keep our rowdy kids from killing each other and destroying our house just so you can be a pure musician, playing pure music. If there ain't support, I don't know what the hell, what is. Thank you. Well, and in, in, in connecting to the character of Troy and Crooklyn, Crooklyn and having that be, this is a, this is a two-parent home. In, but functionally, in many ways, in Crooklyn, Alfre Woodard, she's she's sort of operating tactically as a single mother in terms of like the obligations, the responsibilities. And she says to Delroy Lindo at one point, like, you know, yeah, because you get to be the saint. Like she has to be the enforcer of everything and you get to be the saint. And then obviously in 1001, this is the story of a woman who um, at great at great peril to herself and under sort of unusual circumstances commits to mothering this boy to Terry and and raising him into adulthood and giving him a life that she wasn't able to have herself. And I wanted to hear from you about the sort of connective tissue of like black matriarchy within within your film and within Crooklyn and, and why that's something that resonates with you so much. No, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I hadn't even drawn that parallel between Delroy Lindo's character and then, you know, obviously Will Catlett's character in my movie, uh, whose his name is Lucky. Um, so I... But I, I think that that's correct, that there are these dynamics, you know, and, and I and I was hoping that I think what you see in the connection between those characters, that there is a universal element to what these dynamics are within the homes where you have moms like Troy's mom and like Terry's mom, Inez, who who really want to feel more supported by their partners and they're and they because they're not getting that support, mm-hmm. they're not able to be as 
loving in a in a nurturing way you know it's like it's all very action-based like i love you by making sure you have a roof over your head i love you by paying these mm-hmm. bills by making sure you have food to eat tonight mm-hmm. you know but uh but the the male figure gets to be the more like outwardly nurturing one because yeah, of course he has the capacity to he's not, yeah. not as stressed he's not as much in survival mode yeah um, and i think inez we see her go through that that experience in the movie where because she's the one the parent that has to be way more aggressive and tough about making sure they survive making sure that her kid succeeds there's less room for that as, as their journey progresses um and it was the same thing for for carolyn in 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 crooklyn you know i think she because she had to be such a strong matriarch and because her husband couldn't balance balance well enough with her uh mm the weight of of parenthood it was very distressing and but it also created this imbalance in how their kids related to them too mm-hmm. um and I, I think that's a consistent thread is that the dad figure who's not as present or the in and out present um of course he's going to be a little bit more likable and a little bit more idealized yeah and the parent who is there uh like both of these women is taken for granted mm-hmm. shut up Quit. what kind of example are you setting being the oldest can you hear me? You are so immature. When you finish smashing peas into the floor, I want you to mop. Man, I'd rather have a father than a mother any day. Yeah, any day. What'd you say? What did you say? I said I'd rather have a father than a mother any day. Take your father. Take your father. Let's be out. Yo, hungry ass. Oh, I'm not playing. When I, I think, um... I think uh, another thread between um, the two of these movies that I was really uh, appreciating was they both, I feel like, do such a beautiful job of, of show, don't tell in how, like, these are both um, movies about families in New York City existing, you know, thriving, struggling within the t- exact times that they live in. And like you mentioned, like, the respectability politics conversation that comes into Crooklyn with going from her house in Brooklyn, Troy, then going down to visit, like, her family in the suburbs in the South. And then watching yours, there are, obviously, like, there's the background of, like, Giuliani's New York City is coming to the fore as, is like, your movie starts and gets into its middle period. And then we're moving into, like, Bloomberg's New York City as it ends. Yeah. And we are, like, we hear, like, radio broadcasts of, like, the specificity of, like, the stop and frisk policy and why it should really be called stop, ask, and frisk policy kind of situation. And mm-hmm. then there are moments, too, between it, between Inez and Terry where, you know, he she's talking to him about a girl that he might be crushing on. And he's like, Mom, you know I like Spanish girls. And she just... Like, there's just one line in there where she's like, oh, a girl looks too much like you and you can't take her seriously. And she sees her husband kind of looking at another woman. She's like, is it because she's lighter than me? And Mm -hmm. there isn't like, it's clearly very granularly foregrounding, um, very important conversations about community dynamics and cultural specificity without being like, and now's the time where we're going to talk to you about these things. Like, it is just ambiently true. And I wanted to hear from you about like, not, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like, you're in the middle of the forest, so tell me about the trees. Like, tell me about this experience. I just wanted to hear, like, if you felt like that kind of specificity was something you were seeing in film that you wanted to add your voice to, or you felt like it wasn't there, so you wanted to bring a voice to it. I mean, the, the thing that I was thinking about when in the ways that Bloomberg and and Giuliani are portrayed in the film, I was thinking about The Wizard of Oz. You know, mm. I really like this Oz-like presence mm. and how you feel them. Uh, how you feel them speaking to their citizens, connecting to their citizens. Obviously, you know, in real life, they're not being blasted from a megaphone throughout the neighborhood, you know. 
but I just really love that as a character, uh, you know, as a, as a character and a way to bring them in. I love that Oz like presence. Mm -hmm. So, so that was, <laughs> that was my inspo there. And then um, I think the other thing that United too, which was uh, yeah. How colorism is acknowledged mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in movies. Uh, I haven't seen it. At least I haven't seen it addressed in a way that uh, is experienced in the film, mm -hmm. but I wanted to address it because I think so much of this story is about womanhood, uh, but in a, it's also a, a story that's a specific, that is specific to Black womanhood. And there's so many isms that mm -hmm. all women have to deal with, but colorism is definitely something that is specific to our community. And I felt like that needed to be addressed because in order to fully understand Inez's journey, you needed to fully see what she has to under undergo. And you have to fully see that no matter how much she devotes herself to her family and to the love of her life, she's still made to feel like she is not enough. You know, the women that you see in the film, period. I mean, we see uh, Tyree's love interest, Simone, and the way she has to combat this, too, and how she reacts to that is like, it is this idea that you fundamentally mm -hmm. are not enough based off of all of these features that, as you as you talked about with the scene between uh, Inez and, and Terry, it's like, you look this way, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's ironic that you're telling me that all these examples, these reflections of you are not good enough for you, you mm -hmm. know, in addition to minimizing me along lines of misogyny and chauvinism and all these other ways, because, you know, it's, it's not just the colorism aspect mm -hmm. by which you see the male figures directly indirecting nurture, uh, um, Terry to see women in a certain way. Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a specific part of it. And, and in a movie that's about my coming of age in New York, I, I felt like that had to be addressed if I was going to tell this story about black womanhood within the city. So, uh, so I, I wasn't looking to other films, I guess, long story mm -hmm. short. <laughs> no, great. great. Uh, I, yeah, I, was, I was, I was, I was looking to, to other films. I was looking to experience for that, that, uh, that particular theme. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? Huh? I'm talking to you. Then get out of here and don't come back until you got some money, okay? What took you so long? You let him catch you? What was I supposed to do? Look, you should have told him I don't have to steal nothing from you. I just forgot my money, see? Next time, steal something easier. It feels like a, a unique aspect of, of storytelling from that city where, like, you can spend an entire movie truly on a block, and mm -hmm. it feels like you're in a whole big world. Like, you tell a coming-of-age story, like, in the suburbs, like, a little town where I'm from, you got kids walking down, like, long walks down the street through, like, pastoral, they're passing cows, they're going to the shop down, like, mm -hmm. down on the main street kind of area. Like, but it can be compressed into, like, you're watching Troy, like, 
grow up and like she's like stuffing her shirt in the bathroom trying to grow up a little yeah. too fast. She's going and robbing the corner store because she wants more than they can buy. And I wanted to know if like in your experience of, of growing up, like did you have an upbringing in the way that Troy did of just like, you know, you're just this little kid who's wandering this block where it has like a sort of whole universe in it. And there's an access to the world in that way that is still a microcosm that is it's it's fascinating to me as someone who didn't grow up in, in, a, in a big major city like that. Um, not 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 uh, isolated on one block, per se. Um, I definitely think that um, the neighborhood was my oyster, you know, yeah. like, uh, that that's uh, so I think I just I did have a lot of fun um, and adventures just running around the neighborhood that I grew up in in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I definitely, that's, you know, part of why I connect to the movie because all those kids and all those adventures that she had, in addition to the way she was getting to know herself as, as this, uh, this, you know, young woman, um, mm-hmm. are all the things that I connected to. And so um, it's, it's interesting because I do remember when the world felt so big, just, you know, just roaming, roaming Jamaica, Queens. And then it's like, well, I want to venture into the other boroughs. And I remember like, you just as a a preteen and a teenager, just continuing to expand how I experienced the city and, and, and New York city is is still so huge. Yeah. Um, And so it it can take a lifetime feeling like you've really seen and experienced all that it has to offer you. Um, But that was so much, you know, such a rich and and vital experience for me. And, Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but in some ways, I think as I've evolved, obviously, as as a as a as a person, it still feels so small. Like, I think now mm-hmm. when I go back to to Queens, that world feels so small to me now. And it's very mm-hmm. humbling and it's very grounding to go back there um, and, and necessary. But uh, but I it's it's yeah, it's just it's just has a different I have a completely different view of it now. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and you just have to keep expanding, keep going out and seeing the world. I think that's just really important. We are going to take a quick break, but we will be right back with A.V. Rockwell. Then I will have one quick thing before I go about it's Yellow Jacket season, everybody. So stick around at the end. With Max Fun Drive in the books, we'd like to welcome our new members and say thanks to everyone who's supported us over the years. Welcome. Thanks. And now, on to the sticker sale. A lot of this year's drive gifts and live streams focused on food. We love how food can bring communities together, but not everyone has access to the food they need. So we'll split the proceeds from our sticker sale among five U.S. food banks in areas disproportionately affected by poverty. The sale ends Friday, April 14th. Members at the $10 monthly level and above can purchase any stickers they'd like. There's also a special Max Fun sticker featuring Nutsy the Squirrel that all members can purchase. For more info, head to MaximumFun.org slash sticker sale. And thanks again for your support. A man was walking along a beach which represented his life. At his feet were two sets of footprints, his and God's. But looking back down the beach, the man could see that in the hardest parts of his life, there was only one set of footprints. So the man said to God, why is there only one set of footprints when times were hard? Where were you? And God replied, my precious child, I was in my car listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award winning comedy podcast and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
back to Feeling Seen. Today I'm talking to director A.V. Rockwell, whose new film, A Thousand and One, is in theaters now. It stars Tayana Taylor and won the Grand Jury Prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. A.V.'s movie is set in New York City, and she's feeling seen by a character from another New York movie, Spike Lee's Crooklyn, from 1994. With with this film being such a sort of, like, a, a, a deeply sort of real experience, like a, a following the very real and, and gritty lives of, of these characters, and, and Crooklyn being a real snapshot of a, of a real-life family, I wondered, like, what genres of films did you grow up liking? Where did you watch everything? Like, were you like a no? I'm a Mean Streets girl, mm-hmm. kind of through and through, or were you like no? I was actually watching Excalibur. Like talking <laughs> about the idea of expanding the world and 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 going beyond. Like, what else is there that, that motivates you outside of like these sort of biographical aspects? Um. Yeah. I mean, I watched everything as a kid, but I I didn't watch it with like a serious, you know, no. filmmaking. Sure. <laughs> intensity um and it's, and it, and I really like even when I, I remember first starting college um and Goodfellas was one of my favorite movies I remember whatever the professor asked I, I brought it up and, and I mm. felt like it was this lowbrow thing <laughs> lowbrow movie and so I was like you know I'm, like, I'm raising my hand like you know kind of embarrassed but I'm like honestly this is one of my favorite films but I remember one of my peers you know, she actually shut me down. She was like, no, actually, this movie is a highly respected movie for all these reasons and ways. She was really just saying like, no, that was a cinematic classic. So yeah. you don't try to minimize, you know, how much you try, <laughs> you know, how much you appreciate it. But, but that's how it was for me growing up. I think there was a lot of movies that that I think only in hindsight as I matured and as yeah. I, because I didn't even know film school existed until I was already in college. And so... um a lot of things that I did admire, I, you know, I read, I had to kind of rediscover it later through just like how the industry appreciated it and how, mm-hmm. how, how cinephiles appreciated it. But I, I, I watched all genres. Uh, I loved, uh, I love dramas, but I did also love uh, fantasy films. Mm. Um, I, the only thing I don't mess with is, and I love historical pieces. Like I love mm-hmm. historical epics. Um, the only thing I don't mess with is, is horror, horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> my my passion, my area of specialization. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of people's, but for me, I'm like, no, my imagination's too vivid. Like, uh-uh. uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> what did I love growing up? I mean, you know, I always talk about uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was uh, one of my favorites. One of the great movies of all time. Yeah, I mean, that 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 movie is so many genre, genres unto itself, you know. But uh, but yeah, I think that was that was the one that I really loved. Uh, I loved a lot of the classic Disney movies, mm-hmm. um, like Aladdin, um, you know, Lion King, like all those all those classics. I, I really did enjoy appreciate, and I, and I love musicals and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like I grew up uh, sort of as a performing arts kid. Like that's how I mm-hmm. identify myself, and so. Um, a lot of those movies related to different parts of me, in addition to the dramas, a lot of the gangster movies. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I watched all types of movies. Um, yeah, I think uh, I just avoided. I just avoided those slashers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I would never. I would never try to sell someone on horror films because it's it's such a specifically visceral experience. It's like, listen, if you're not into that, I'm not going to try and make you into that. <laughs> like, that's. I don't want you to be upset. I don't want you to be miserable. So I understand. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I like that um, the, 
the idea of like I just really liked Goodfellas and I I thought people thought this movie was garbage mm-hmm. and then like um and then bringing Crooklyn into this conversation having it be like a maybe like a, a down tier title I guess in the canon of Spike Lee how it's sort of popularly considered and I think that's a that's sort of become a real passion pursuit of my adulthood in terms of like how I like enjoy movies is like the canon like kind of sucks like it Mm -hmm. it's filled with great movies but I didn't make it and the people who generally conceive of it don't speak for me so I I kind of find myself in this sort of perpetual path to be like no, God, God damn the canon. Like, I don't need to know what the AFI tells me are the top 100 movies of all time. Like, I'd rather make or recommend my own top 100, like, most effective movies. And I I wanted to, I guess from that, like, do the classics speak to you? Or are you like, ah, I don't really, like, they're not really doing much for me with the conventional wisdom tells me I should watch. I just want to be out here with what I love. You know, I, I, I think it's always been important for me to, main a, uh, to, re, to maintain a certain level of balance because yeah. I think that I think what you're kind of getting at is a lot of what is kind of presented as like, this is the canon. These are the classics. These are the, the quote unquote important movies. Exactly. They're not always the most accessible. They're not always the most like popular, so to speak. And not mm-hmm. to say that what's popular is always what's excellent either. Sure. You know, but it, I think... There is something to be said about like, okay, if these movies are so great, why don't not why don't all of them always connect to more people? Why don't more yeah. people see themselves and why don't they you know relate to them? And I think there's aspects of all these movies that do make them stand strong. And I and I was, I love so many of them mm-hmm. uh, as a filmmaker. I love what's great about them or what's great about those cinematic voices. But at the end of the day, I know that I make movies for the people. Mm-hmm. So I think what I love about people like Spike and Scorsese, who we've talked about, is mm-hmm. they were able to find that balance and they were telling stories that had so much cinematic uh, mastery within it um, and had so much to say in various ways. But they were also able to access, you know, access so many people. And mm-hmm. I think that's important because I don't make movies for you know for an art museum like I don't I make (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah you know I I make movies for you know for people for society Mm -hmm. like I want to be able to connect with people like movies is a way that I'm able to speak to people and Mm -hmm. help them reconnect with themselves or build connections with others Mm -hmm. so if the stories that I'm telling aren't connecting with uh, aren't connecting with us as a very limited and specific crowd Mm -hmm. that I feel like I haven't really I haven't really done my job, you know. I think I've I've made a movie out of conceit more than compassion, um, and 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 I I'm I'm trying to you know reach people like with the the story that I'm telling. Like I was thinking about women like Inez, children like like that like Terry, men mm-hmm. like Lucky. I was thinking about like what I want people to see themselves and see themselves represented in a certain way and feel, feel honored in that way or feel loved in that way. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them people to uh, uh, other people, if this not your experience, I wanted them to understand what it means to exist like this person in the world. I wanted people to have more empathy for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, So if, 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 if people aren't able to connect to your movies then I don't know. Then who are you really making it for? But but, <laughs> yeah. that, but I think uh, but everybody's agenda is different. Some people sure. just really love the art of it. You know, they're mm-hmm. just really about the framing. They're really about the production design. They're really about the stylization of mm-hmm. movies. And maybe they are, you know, really on to only wanting to 
to speak to a specific group of people. But I don't think that's everybody's agenda. And it's certainly not mine. I'm really trying to um, bring society together through the stories that I tell. Well, that, that okay, so from there, then I would like to ask you about like, there's a lot of rhetoric around like change and progress. But like, I'm, I always want to know from people who are actually making the work, if action is reflecting the progress of dialogue kind of situation where like, you know, there are still like, I feel like we are coming to a threshold where movies starring a bunch of gay people, starring a bunch of queer folks can just be movies instead Mm -hmm. of queer movies. Like Fire Island, it's for the gays, obviously, but it's also for everyone. And like Mm -hmm. Bros was out here being like, hey, guys, this is for everyone. But we, the gays, made this. (laughs) And as a creator and and the way you feel supported and your work has has been received over, over so long, do you feel like like black cinema is coming to a point where it it is just it can just be considered cinema as opposed to like look at this great work of black artistry which yes it is but also look at this great work of artistry to where like you are on a list of directors not black directors or female directors like does it feel like that traction is happening for the kind of work you make and the mass of people that you want to reach uh, no, I, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I think that is and an, uh, something that's always been very annoying is is the categorization. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you can't just be considered like a filmmaker. You mm-hmm. know, um, it's like oh, like look at this, look at this black filmmaker, this black female fi- 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 filmmaker, or look at mm-hmm. this like you know this gay filmmaker. It's like we're constantly subcategorized mm-hmm. instead of just saying like I'm I'm not asking to be anyone's niche. I'm just asking for space to exist. You yeah. Know? So um, so that has always been frustrating for me in the ways that it has played a, a role. Uh, mm-hmm. But in some ways it is it's tough because we kind of need it also to have that push in order to get us to this next level, which is it just sucks. Yeah. You know, it's like I need you to see, you know, it's like I almost need you to see this individual part of me in mm-hmm. order to, first before you can see my full humanity, you know, which is really all I'm asking for is just see my abilities as a human to tell a story instead of just trying to say like, oh, I can't tell it because I'm a woman. I can't tell mm-hmm. it because of the color of my skin mm-hmm. or, you know, so um, do I think it's changing? I think so. I think. And the answer can be no. I don't need you to sugarcoat it for me. Like oh, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I think it's changing. I think it's slow. But I okay. do think progress is 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 happening, and 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 that I appreciate. I think that statistics are more important to me than 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 the visibility. Like the visibility mm. is super important because mm-hmm. I think anybody who is watching movies now, they they are watching it in a in in and and seeing representation in ways that I didn't when I was growing up. You know, for real, yeah. Even with the last within the last film, uh, last year alone, just the amount of women filmmakers, black women filmmakers that were like, you know, making like huge mainstream projects that did mm-hmm. great at the box office and just was, you know, did did great with critics and, you know, just so well embraced in a mainstream way. We weren't just like some small niche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that that's a very big deal. But I still think that when you look at statistics of how many of us are actually like working directors mm-hmm. and, and and working is a very important word because yes. You can have, you know, 100,000 of us, but if for 90% of that 100,000, it's only a hobby, what does it matter to say like, oh yeah, look, there's plenty of y'all, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> so I think uh, we, right now, the last statistics I saw, you know, st- within the last five years, was we still represented like less than 2% mm-hmm. you know, of actual working the, And that was, that's why I asked it, because like the numbers mm-hmm. haven't changed a lot, actually, mm-hmm. since we all said time's up. Yeah. Like, 
the numbers are actually pretty the same. And yeah. so I wanted to know about like if as you feel it as somebody who's been making things for a decade, if it's like, well, I feel how it's changing, even if the numbers are really lagging behind. Yeah. And 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 it's also like I I live within my own world. We all live within mm. our own little universes. So in the space that I exist in, I know so many people that are thriving that look like me. Mm. But well, I still interact with actors or you know producers or just people on set who are so excited to see me, see somebody who looks like me running the show, leading the charge. I always have to take a second because I'm, I'm being reminded that it's still so rare. You know, and so to me, that that is that that is the indicative of like those statistics need to change. So I can't wait to see some new numbers. Yeah. And, yeah. And progress. <laughs> now, if it jumped to 10 percent in the past five years, then I have a lot more hope. Uh, but I think that visi- the visibility is important. I just don't mm-hmm. want people to lose sense of the bigger picture and how we need to see both sides of change and in, uh, and in, in across the board in the industry. Yeah, it's because it, like I, I, you know, I have this whole podcast and it's talking about like feeling seen and stuff like that. And it's 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 trying to walk the line constantly of sort of like the treacly notion of visibility, which is great, which we need. But like it, I never want to draw the false equivalency between visibility and representation because they are not the same thing. Yeah, and one one is a one is like a broader systemic shift. And one is like a thing that helps us feel better about ourselves, particularly predominantly as white people. Yeah. So like I and that and I even and as a as a queer person, like I'm very proudly queer and I'm very proudly I'm very proudly woman identified. But like so and I find like as a geriatric millennial, 37, <laughs> like the idea of like I still get excited talking about things as like, you know, oh, look at this, like this gay character in this story. And then I feel like Gen Z is like, why do you care? Like, get over it. They're, they're here. Like, they're truly here they're queer get used to it and I'm like no but it's still so exciting that it's true so even I find myself like getting caught up in sort of the excitement of just like small things when like I I feel at times like I do that at the expense of being like no but demand more be better so that yeah you're not asking me but that's me monologuing at you about that but no it it is important and those small things are big things you know and it's yeah and it is more normalized you know, for the next generation. But that's the point is that the more yeah. like we condition the world to just see, you know, a better, a better uh, representation of what the world really looks like on screen, you know, seeing, mm-hmm. seeing what's on screen reflecting the world a lot better. Uh, the more the next generation who are eventually going to be sitting in my chair and in these mm-hmm. executive chairs, they're going to be the ones that want to are going to be making change and making sure that these things become more normalized than they are now by the old guard, you know. I went, when you when you first watch Crooklyn, like obviously you're I'm assuming you're young at the time. So you see it and like you're not like, ah, this is why this feels unique in the experience of watching. Like as you got older, like looking at the character, looking at the character of Troy now and looking at Crooklyn now, is it like, wow, that was kind of exceptional in the way that it allowed me to feel connected to a character on screen? Or did that for you feel like one of a multitude of examples that you could latch onto as having a sort of avatar for yourself? I mean, I would say it was the exception. I think there were a lot of movies, iconic movies that came out during this era. So it's not like there were other representations of like, you know, being black on screen. Um, But 
that movie stood out for me in a way that I didn't think about at the time. I've only really yeah. thought about it recently. Cause me, people ask me all the time and I, and I do list it as one of my favorites, um, especially the ones that, that I grew up with. But I think when I look back at it now, especially now when people do ask me this question that you, mm. you know, only recently do people start like, when was the first time you started you, that you felt seen um, in a, in a, in a character? Uh, I, uh, that's what I was like, no, Crooklyn really, it's about, <laughs> cause I remember like, it was an event for me. Like I remember oh. the first time I saw it, I think it was like in the middle of the night. Like, you know how these, how movies, when they're syndicated, they'll just be playing randomly at 3 a.m. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's how I discovered it. And I only, <laughs> the movie, it, was, it probably might've been like 30 minutes or 45 minutes into the movie. I, like whatever <laughs> point I found it, I fell in love with it. But this was before DVR and, yeah. you know, like this is before you can just go back. So I had to kind of like stalk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's a truly like, like the kids today ha- will never yeah. understand <laughs> so i was like i didn't i didn't know the name of the movie i didn't know i was like how oh, no. do i find this movie again so i had to kind of like stalk my like tv guide like i think this might have been it eventually i found it um and i remember i was so hooked on it and my brother uh this and this is how terrible it was you couldn't even find um you couldn't find a DVD or, or VHS for it anywhere. And no. so I remember my brother found a VHS of, of Crooklyn on uh, eBay. Um, <laughs> so he got me, he got me the VHS for, for like my birthday or something. And I, so I was like, that was like the best thing somebody could have got me. I'm actually really upset that I can't <laughs> find that VHS. It's some, it has to be somewhere in my mom's house, but I'm infuriated because when I speak, when I see Spike, I want him to sign it for me. Like, you know, I it's want that you special. to have this. Yeah, you know, like I really, you know, it meant that much to me. But I remember mm-hmm. I wanted everybody to see. I was like, no, you need to see this movie. So I made people watch Crooklyn, you know, <laughs> and to mixed results too. Like I remember my best friend, she didn't, she didn't relate to it in the same way. She's like, oh yeah, that was a cute movie. I was like, like, what do you mean? And, I, and we're not best friends today, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, just, well, we saw that coming. <laughs> you know, it's like I, you know, I was like the signs were there, you know. But, yeah. um, but that was an event for me. So it's only now that I can look back at, at life and look back what that moment was. And it was because of how seen I felt, which I mm-hmm. took I took it for granted as a kid. I really, really took that for granted at the time and for so much of my life. But now I look back and I'm like, that's why. The reason why it stood out to me is because how much I felt yeah. uh, represented. And that is the power of representation, period. Ladybug, you turned out pretty good considering you were raising a house full of ashy, rusty oh. butt boys. When did you realize that you were like, well, I can do this too? Like when in your movie watching life, were you like, no, I want to make these. This this is going to this doesn't just have to be something that I watch Spike Lee do. Like, I'm going to do this myself. You know, I think there there was always an influence that I feel like I, I took from the filmmakers that I admired growing up. Because even though there's a lot of movies that I love growing up, I think why I always reference Spike and Corsese is because before I knew anything about filmmaking in a sophisticated way, I always appreciated their voice. Yeah. Like, I felt the voice of these two filmmakers in their work. And my first, uh, the first opportunity that I had to direct anything was was in high school. Mm. And, and I directed like a series of plays that we had. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking of them and thinking about how they made me feel 
you know, through their work. And I'm like, oh, finally, I have space to play now, <laughs> you know. Um, but it, it, but I, I remember feeling like I like this thing directing, and I know, but I know, and I know a stage is too small for me. I'm like, I want to play in a bigger canvas. But I didn't know anything about movie making, so I really put it in the back of my head, like, oh, maybe one day, yeah, I'll somehow gain access to do something that cool. But, uh, but I didn't, I didn't think I would ever get access to the mystical world of movie making. So yeah. I put it in the back of my head and it wasn't until I got into college and I was studying abroad in Paris mm-hmm. and we had a European cinema class. Okay. And I remember watching those movies, uh, those classics. And, and I think that expanded my view of what filmmaking could be. Right. And, and I, I, and it was, so I think after this point I was like, Oh wow. Like this is really an art form. You uh-huh. know, this isn't just entertainment. And, and then I think around that time I was really trying to get a sense of, how do I take these experiences that I had a kid, whether I was acting, a singing, a dancing, or or di- and, you know directing by the yeah. time and, and writing too in in, mm-hmm. in high school? How do how do I synergize that? And so mm-hmm. filmmaking, it, it was like I was like, oh, I can do all of that through filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I can do it in a really in a way more expansive way than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, just in in the way that I had experienced American movies up until mm-hmm. that time. And so uh, I discovered New York, uh, New York University had a film school and I was like, oh, there's a film program. And and I don't know what it means to be an artist for a living. Like, yeah, you know, I didn't grow up in an art in an artistic household. And so I don't really know how a film degree translates into a job post. college. And I think a lot of people with film degrees don't know that. either. Yeah. yeah. And so I was I was really scared, but I also felt like I need to spend the rest of my life feeling the exact way that I felt as a kid doing all those things with just me having playtime. Oh, you know? so I, I think uh, that's what made me take this path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what made me stay on this path is not, not only what I did for myself, but just in terms of me wanting to enjoy playtime as an adult. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but I saw the purpose in it of what I could also do for other people. I saw mm-hmm. how the things that I created was resonating with other people um, at a very core level. And I was like, oh, this is this is how you can make a really a big difference in society in general, in the world in general, mm-hmm. uh, which goes back to what you asked me earlier, which is why do I feel like, you know, music, there, there needs to be a balance uh, in how you tell a story as a filmmaker. You can't just be telling it in a way that 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 plays towards cinephiles and, and important cinema. And important. Exactly. You know, that's like, obviously, you do want to be embraced for, you know, mastering your craft. But mastering your craft should be a byproduct of telling a story that really resonates with people in universal ways mm-hmm. and meaningful ways that makes their life somehow more richer than it was before they stepped into that theater or mm-hmm. turned on their TV, you know? Um, and so I think keeping that balance of not only do I want to tell stories, but this is what I have to say is yeah. what has kept me here and, and excited to keep going. Well, I mean, from from stalking Crooklyn on <laughs> AM cable to <laughs> directing school plays to winning the grand jury prize at Sundance. A.V. Rockwell, I'm glad you're here. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Corey, been, ugh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but no, thank you so much <laughs> for having me. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you today. And I feel so seen. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> Thank you very much, Avery. Thank you again to A.V. Rockwell. You can watch 1001 in theaters across the country right now. And Crooklyn 
is streaming on Roku. So congratulations to everyone with a Roku device. And now one quick thing before I go, uh, the Yellow Jackets are back, guys. That's it. That's the thing. I'm so excited, obviously. Um, yeah, I, I'm happy to see my girls again. Like, okay, so Jackie, Jackie, my beloved Jackie in the show. I had a friend who recently went to, this is going to be spoilery, guys. This is going to be spoilery. I just have to say this fun fact because it makes me so happy about Yellow Jackets. I had a friend who went to a Q&A screening of um, new new episodes at the Paley Center recently for or like a Paley Fest showing. It's like, hey, look, that's our film and TV. Let's celebrate it. There's a cast Q&A afterwards. And apparently the Jackie, again, spoilers, guys, the frozen Jackie body in Yellow Jackets is filled with jackfruit. So they called her the Jackie Fruit. And that is a hilarious fact from behind the scenes of season two of Yellow Jackets. Like this, again, spoilers all over the place. We got adult Lottie. We have got, we have got murder investigations. We have got uh, Misty, being Misty as we always need. We have Juliette Lewis uh, imprisoned on a compound by guru mastermind Lottie. Uh, Yeah, we're back. The swings are big. We're racing forward. I'm just so happy to see my friends in the frozen north and my friends uh, in the present, in present day New Jersey, and to follow along on all their exploits. It has been too long, and I'm so happy to see them. Um, But that, that is not actually the last thing today. The last thing I have to say is thank you to everyone who supported Feeling Seen in the Max Fun Drive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We hit our goals. There will be a poster giveaway from uh, some of my own personal one sheets that I own uh, a simple favor among them uh, I think that I really think there's a promising young woman one in there uh, that I can that I that I would be willing to part with uh, and names will be drawn for that soon and then we will have a Babylon apologists episode where I talk to people like me who loved Babylon and we talk about how Babylon rules um, you wanted it so we're gonna give it to you uh, but yeah that's it that's the show. Thank you for supporting us in the Max Fun Drive. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, thank you for watching Yellow Jackets. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingSceneAtMaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.